All right. Welcome to Waroni News, to our one listener. Um, so before we begin today, I'd like to acknowledge um, that we're meeting and working on Ngunnawal and Nambri lands, which were stolen, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Um, I pay respects to any First Nations people here and listening. We're striving to put First Nations voices at the center of our reporting and to prioritize their agency in any stories about their experiences. So, welcome to Wurundi News. ANU's oldest news team brings you our best stories of the past week, and we're bringing you up to date on what's happening around campus and discussing the issues at the ANU. I'm Alexander, I'm the news editor, and I'm here today with our two senior reporters, Rosie and Zelda. Let's get started with an article we put out over summer, something that was a bit of a pet project that I want to talk about. It's called Through the R Triple S Glass by Dina Lawatwani. The article took us quite a bit of time to write. If you haven't read it, it explains where the College of Arts and Social Sciences is heading to. Their undergraduate intake is expected to decrease, while postgraduate enrollment is expected to increase. Meanwhile, the CAS administration is moving towards consolidated degrees, which means less specialised degrees. We've already seen cuts to the following degrees, development studies, archaeological practice, classical studies, European studies, and the Middle East and Central Asian studies bachelor. At the same time, the university overall is moving to a more consolidated model. So documents obtained through freedom of information requests show that the ANU is planning to introduce a core module for all students, equivalent to a minor that features various courses and includes ANIP. The final part of our article, which proved a real tough nut for us to crack, was the staff testimonies. These testimonies pointed towards a degree of chaos in CAS, with lecturers themselves not understanding the process for course and degree cuts. So Zelda and Rosie, why don't you introduce yourselves and we'll get started with our discussion. Hi everybody, I'm Zelda and I'm a senior reporter at Waroni. And I'm Rosie and I'm also a senior reporter at Waroni. So to get started with our discussion, we were just wanting to ask you, Alex, where would you have liked to take that article? Fantastic question. Um, I think we spoke to a lot of staff and something they all really impressed upon us, um, you know, both myself and Dina went around interviewing these staff, was kind of the importance of getting some of our questions to Jeff Hinchcliffe the, um, I believe, the Associate Dean of CAS. Um, so I think one testimony, what they talked about is this real catch-22 situation that CAS currently has. So CAS lecturers will often teach two classes. They'll teach their generic kind of intro-level course, that 1,000 we're all used to doing, and they'll also teach their specialised course. And if you don't teach a course for three years, it gets cut but often you're expected to teach a generic level course every two to three years. So you can kind of see how if you're trying to keep a course going, but then you're expected to jump around and teach this general level course, it gets in the way. Um, so, you know, someone we spoke to talked about how one of their colleagues had kind of scrambled to find a replacement lecturer. And I just think that it would have been lovely to kind of put those questions to Jeff and kind of walk him through, I guess, the experiences that we'd heard about. I suppose, you know, it's a trite metaphor, but a bit more on the ground. Yeah, so talking about the staff um, that you were talking to for the article, what was that process like reaching out to professors? Great question. Um, it's a bit daunting. It's a bit odd. Um, I think you guys were both there, actually, when we did the planning. Um, what did you guys think when I first said to people, like, let's go out and speak to some staff? What were your guys' thoughts? I was, yeah, a very anxiety-inducing process. I think I, <laughs> I think I told you, I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I could do that. But I, I think I could see why it was valuable to the article. And I think staff do have, like, a really important voice that's not often covered in Moroni, but, like, we know they read it and are interested in it. So I did 
daunting, but I think it was important. Yeah, definitely. I think the idea of like kind of approaching your professors to say like, what are your concerns about the ANU in general feels like a little bit of a tough thing to do. There's so many power structures kind of going on there. But as Rosie said, you can see the importance of it. And CAS is such a like big field at the ANU that so many people study in it. And you can see why it has such a big impact across the, like, the entirety of the ANU. Yeah, I mean, I think I was expecting to get stonewalled a bit more. I really thought you'd cold email these professors and they would come, like they would just not say anything or they'd just kind of say like, nope, can't do. But everyone was really helpful. I think people who didn't want to talk just didn't want to talk. It, it didn't have anything to do with, um, I don't know, I think sometimes you think, you know, working in, in student journalism, some people get really scared about jobs and things like that. And I think um, no one had that concern. And then the staff we spoke to were really helpful. Um, they were quite passionate and I, I, guess it's always hard to tell but it would be interesting to know if they are the staff who are considered like more passionate at CAS who kind of push these issues a bit more you know mm. I know CAS has staff meetings I'd love to know who stands up and asks the hard-hitting questions and if we ended up interviewing any of them yeah exactly and I think um I guess the last question can I have sum up this article what kind of impact do you think this article has had yeah um before we came on I I hate doing this because I reject KPIs, but we, I was looking at the social statistics, and I think it had good reach for a summer article. I think it's in the magazine now, um, soft plug, you can go pick up Euphoric from any of our stands, but it's in the magazine now, and I hope that through that it kind of filters out. Um, I got, like, we got a lot of positive reception from it, people who are interested in Warney I think picked it up, whether it kind of permeated beyond, I mean, I don't know, I don't think you can beat any any coverage that, you know, Schmidt's resignation brings, I guess. Mm. It's a bit tricky. Have we got any um, feedback from staff about the way that they've been platformed through our article? No feedback, which is interesting. And I, I would be very interested to follow up um, to see what's happened because I, you know, we all know that the ANU thinks about student media and thinks about student organisations and, and that, you know, CAS has had those discussions. And I would love to see if any of it got mentioned or if it, you know, sometimes you worry with these that it's kind of one of those things where when you're on the inside, none of it looks, like, uh, real. You know, so you, you would read this and think, like, oh, they've gotten it so wrong. Um, so I would really love to see kind of what happened. And, and maybe we should, you know, if I ever find any spare time between now and graduation, maybe I'll reach out and see, see what they thought. So, <clears throat> sorry, we might move on. We want to talk a little bit about lockout fees. Um, if any of you have been following this issue, um, it's gotten quite a lot of attention. Um, we rarely have so many positive comments underneath our articles, which <laughs> I've really enjoyed. But um, Zelda wrote a large number of the articles about the lockout fees. So Zelda, do you want to start us off? What exactly happened and why were students outraged? Yeah, so I think it's pretty simple. Um, last year, ANU's lockout fees were $15. And this year, going into 2023, um, they were proposing that the lockout fees were going to change to $100 per lockout. And I think the reasons why students were outraged were also kind of seemingly obvious, but maybe more complex than initially presumed. But mostly the issues were around disabilities and the risk of targeting students that were already kind of in like a minority group at the ANU by making them justify reasons why they should be exempt from the lockout fee or, or just being more at risk of being locked out of their rooms and then having to face this lockout fee. The other issue is um, safety and the idea that students are just going to leave their 
college rooms unlocked rather than face the idea of getting locked out and or staying somewhere else until they can open business hours again and access their rooms because an $100 lockout fee is a huge amount of money. It's, you know, a week's worth of groceries or more. It's half rent, half of B&G's rent at least. Um, it's, it's a large amount of money that we're talking about and for that to be just for getting locked out of your room, I think, caused a lot of outrage. Fantastic. While we're giving some context, Rosie, was there any discussion of the lockout fees? Like, as someone, you know, not to dox you, who doesn't live on campus, did anyone not living on campus bring it up? And I know, you know, you float around the Bergman Circle, which I don't think they saw a lockout fee increase because they're a private college. Did it kind of, did it permeate beyond anyone who wasn't immediately affected by it? I think it did. I think people, so most of my household came from Bergman or were in Wombrin like two years ago. Um, so they really didn't know what a lockout fee was, but they'd heard a lot of talk on campus, you know, we're obviously still friends with people who live on campus. And I think it was one of those articles that had like such universal reach that like people outside of the like group affected were actually really interested in it. And they're like, hang on a minute, this makes no sense. Um, so I wouldn't say it was like, I think Warrini did the job of, like, elevating the issue beyond the people affected, right? Because I think the people affected were obviously already, like, talking to each other and, like, if you live in a hall, it's something you're going to encounter very quickly. Um, No, but I think, yeah, when the article came out, my housemates were like, what is a lockout fee? And I was like, yeah. But, yeah, Berg never had any, which is interesting, Um, although I'm sure you're covering the $100 in the increased tuition. (laughs) But I think it did make you feel safe that you could call, we call them RAs, but an SR at any point and, like, get let into your room. Yeah, so... So lead us through what students did about the lockout fees. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why we kind of initially saw, well, one of the reasons I initially saw this kind of issue and thought it was going to be something that would get the attention that it eventually has gotten was from just looking on Schmidt posting and ANU confessions, which I know sounds a bit trivial, but people were really concerned. They were, like, asking, like, what is this going to mean, um, like, raising like issues of concern about who might be affected or where this money is going or even why has it increased to $100, which we still don't know. Um, so I think already students were starting the discussion like quite early on. Um, then it was obviously taken up by us and we reached out to Ben Yates, the president of the of ANUSA and the IHC, which is the Interhall Council, and both of those student representative bodies spoke out against the lockout fees. Um, ben Yates started a petition which has gained over a thousand signatures, and the IHC wrote a statement against the lockout fees, which they submitted. So I think just like this combined student conversation combined with like actual action in the form of the petition and the statement kind of hammered home to the ANU that this wasn't something that was just going to be taken lightly. There was students that were concerned about it and that concern wasn't going to go away. Yeah. Yeah, so speaking of hammering it home to the ANU, Mm. obviously there was a response from them recently. So what was the response and what does this say about, like, the effectiveness of all that kind of action? Yeah, definitely. So instead of it being a $100 lockout fee every time, the ANU is now proposing that it's free for the first um, and second lockout, $30 for the third and fourth, and then $100 for the fifth and sixth and kind of onwards, and that it would reset every semester. And they said that they did make that change in response to some of the student um, feedback that they were receiving. So I think that that does speak to the power of the student um, voice and the way that they've made that change and even though it wasn't what we asked for which was no $100 lockout fee at all it is somewhat of a compromise um, from the ANU. 
it's interesting you say that because when you do the arithmetic, it's fifteen dollars for your first four lockouts, and then it's still a hundred dollars. Mm. Um, so it does kind of start to stack up. Do you think students are going to cop those changes, or what do you think is going to happen next? Yeah, well, I think what's kind of scary is that, um, from what I've heard from some SRs and just some students in general, is just this kind of acknowledgement that, yeah, maybe there needs to be a lockout fee for, you know, and students might need to, you know, learn to carry their card around. And that's kind of the message that the ANU is sending out. But what we've kind of consistently tried to say is there's no link between like an increased fee and forgetting your card because nobody gets locked out on purpose. So I think it's a little bit concerning that like some of that rhetoric coming from the ANU does seem to be coming into the student population and like the conversations that are being had. But I think overall, um, students made a big deal out of this change. Action has happened. And I don't think that we're going to continue. I don't think when someone is charged $100, it's not going to become a big deal. I think um, Ben Yates is still pushing for there to be more change. I think the IHC is still on, on board with that. And I think if we can kind of continue the momentum that we built up, we built up over the past little while, that we definitely have the ability to continue to change the way that the lockout fees are proposed into the future I think like another interesting thing I was thinking about is like there's no real rationale for the lockout fee right because you have to employ an SR to be on duty anyway and it's like it's not like that $15 is going to that SR's like wage like obviously isn't because people are getting paid the same they did last year mm. um so I think like it's very interesting to see like how students will process it in that way and it's like where is that money going and why has it even been created in the first place? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting question. And so, you know, full disclosure, I am an SR. Slay. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we have to be on duty anyways. And on top of that, um, you don't actually have that many lockout calls. I mean, like, you know that it's going to be on a Thursday and a Friday and a Saturday night. You know you're going to have a lot then because you've got drunk kids coming back. But, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, you might get one. At, at 2 a.m. And, and you know when I've had that it's because the door itself is not working mm -hmm. and so I think like it's it's interesting because you know the rhetoric was a student's complaint SRs complained about the number of lockouts they had to deal with and you've kind of got to look at and I think you're right Rose you know is that fixing the issue or is that like a specific hall like you know there's so many things I'm interested to hear because if that was a specific hall is that something to do with their culture mm -hmm. um yeah, I think it's 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 interesting. I I personally haven't found it too much of a disturbance, um, and you know you think about those nights where it's going to be annoying, and sure that's going to be annoying. But if you're only doing a lockout shift once every fortnight, which is the kind of ANU expectation, then you're you can almost go an entire semester without even working a Thursday or Friday. You could, people went whole years without doing a fire alarm ever. So I think kind of importantly on that kind of point is like, what is the role of the SR? Like, is your role? A kind of policing role where you're now like putting people's names down for getting locked out multiple times and then kind of subjecting them to this fee or is your role pastoral care and I just think like one of the issues that were raised was that how is this lockout fee going to affect the like the pastoral care relationship between SRs and their students and I think that's such a big deal and such a, like a thing that you could be putting at risk through these changes and I think the other thing is is um I know that the disabilities co-officers have raised it, but the idea that you kind of have to justify why 
certain people or certain groups should be exempt from the lockout fee and they kind of described it as getting an EAP for your accommodation but it's exactly that. That's literally what they said is you can get an access and inclusion plan for your accommodation. But imagine like having to disclose like a disability or like as the women's officer kind of raised um, like past trauma or any other reasons why you might need to be exempt and then having to tell that to your head of hall whom you would never have to disclose that to beforehand and then also use it and then have somebody else tell you whether that is enough for you to be exempt from the lockout fee. I just think, yeah, like in terms of this big push for student safety on campus, the introduction of the new um, consent module, like it just seems to be in such a contradiction of, yeah, is it is it about safety? What is this actually about? And where is that $100 going? Fantastic. Well, we'll leave the audience with that question. Um, we're going to move on to chat GBT, GPT. It's <laughs> a hard one. Which I guess the first question is, explain the acronym to me, first of all, because I don't understand why it's called that. So I can tell you exactly what it means, but I know it refers to the type of AI it is. I could probably look it up for you. Um, it's kind of a terrible name. Like, I haven't heard anyone pronounce it correctly. <laughs> um, but in general, what it is, is... It's a web-based AI platform, and it creates original text based on prompts. So the thing that makes this different from, like, other AIs in your life, so if you're on TikTok, you're interacting with an AI algorithm, right? Like, if you're on Spotify, it's recommending you music, is that, like, you're the one directly asking it questions, and then it's giving you, like, very, very accurate responses in kind of a scary way. Um, And I think the way it's exploded is, like, firstly, because it's very accurate, and secondly, because it's, like, that direct interface with the technology. Like, it feels like a conversation with an AI, um, which I think people are finding very interesting. And it's also free to use, although you do have to sign up to use it and give them some information about yourself, which I found interesting when I was giving it a go in the last week. So why would a student use it? Well, there's a lot of reasons students might use chat GPT. Um, I do both arts and STEM, so I threw a bit of both prompts in. I found it's pretty useful if you're trying to structure ideas. So I've given it like an essay question before and been like, how should I structure this? Or given it notes and been like, can you reorganize this? Um, it's really good at summarizing readings, I've found. If you're in one of those, wow. I'm in a third year methods course with like 500 pages of reading a week and I'm not doing it and putting it in chat GPT. Um, and then when it comes to STEM, I gave it two questions that were of interest to me and it was able to give me Python code for like what would be equivalent to like a first year homework task. So generating um, the Fibonacci sequence, um, and it did it instantly. And I also gave it like a maths proof and it wrote one for me that was like legible and accurate. And as a math student, that freaked me out. So, sorry, just to jump in, you said it gave it to you instantly. Are there, mm-hmm. are there kind of questions you can give it to where it has to sit and think about them for a while? Yes. So. I gave it my, full context, I'm not a law student, I'm very proud of that fact, but my housemate is, so I gave it um, a law essay prompt, and it kind of writes the essay in real time, like quickly, it looks like, I don't know, a machine that's typing, mm-hmm. but it is taking its time, right? Like it's slowly You're working watching it, it type. You're watching so it you, Yeah, there's that visual element. Yeah. yeah, but with those shorter questions, it was like pretty much instantaneous and it was kind of freaky. Um, so... Like, you said it can give you, like, Python. If you're... Okay, maybe this is my disdain for STEM, Mm -hmm. but if you're moving into more abstract, like, courses, is it really going to give you a passable answer? Well, so you'd think maths proofs are abstract, right? So if you gave it, like... I'm sure if you gave an equation, it could work out the answer, but when you're being, like, prove to me that two odd numbers will always equal an even number, like, adding them together, it could do that for me. 
and, and I was like the face you're giving me says that that's scary. Yeah, it was fully. I've never touched mouth structuring in my life. it in a way that like would be acceptable to hand in for homework, and it was just like kind of crazy. Um, however, I did find with the wall essay I gave it, which was like quite a complex question, it had a quote, it wanted you to form an opinion on the question. Mm. It kind of struggled with that, so it gives you like a short summary of basically what your question is. It reads it back to you in uh, the form of an introduction, like a thesis yeah. statement. And then it like gives you basic information. So this, I can't remember what this was about, but it was like, it had a couple of law terms in it and then it was defining those law terms and like giving an example, but it wasn't really forming an opinion. I think you could get it to work if you were asking more probing questions. Like if you took that, and it was very short, it was like 500 words or less, the essay it gave me. But I think if you were taking like certain keywords or like investigated some of the phrases in the paragraphs, you can really elicit it out of it. But I think this is, yeah, it takes quite a while. So before we jump into kind of talking about the university, I just want to stay on its actual like passability, I guess. Yeah. Do you think there's like a Dunning-Kruger aspect to it? Because, for example, I, someone actually put in our Arabic class chat, um, you know, I put something into chat GPT and got like an Arabic exam out of it. But I was kind of thinking like, I do not speak Arabic well enough to know if that's a good exam. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's an element of like, you know, with those harder hitting questions, is it kind of relying on the idea that you yourself as a user wouldn't know what is right or what is wrong? Like we would put something in and go like, looks looks fine, looks dandy. But if like a professor put it in, they would kind of think, oh, this is, you know, this reads like a, a uni student hasn't quite understood it. Do you think there's that effect? I, I definitely think it is. I think it reads sometimes like a uni student running an essay on the day before an exam. <laughs> and it's like, this is what you've asked me. Here is some basic information I've Googled, right? Um, I think also the, the reason I was quite surprised is because like the questions I gave, I already knew the answer to. So I knew what it was generating was correct. I think if you get into a situation where you're like a student doing a coding assignment and you're just like throwing stuff into the abyss and you're hoping it's right, like nobody can really guarantee its accuracy, right? Like that's not the point, it's learning and it's evolving. Um, so yeah, I think if you're a professor and you're talking about these like essay style questions and someone literally just put in the essay prompt and didn't do any following up, it'd be pretty easy to spot. Um, I think shorter, like I know we have some courses where it's like do a 500 word response. I think that would be like, you could probably get away with that, which is where it gets quite interesting. Yeah, and I guess coming back to the university, um, what do you think the industry response is and maybe what should it be? Yeah, so it's interesting like how industry has responded versus universities, right? So industry like is largely supportive of it, I feel, and like that makes sense. It's a product that I'm sure eventually you could sell. Like I was talking to my housemate about it and she's like, oh, I use the Notion AI, but it's like capped at 20 uses a semester or whatever. Um, so I think those like... And, like, it's kind of, like, it's led industry to promote all these other AIs. So I'm getting, like, Instagram ads about a resume builder that's, like, AI-based, which is just in time for grad jobs. Um, but I think they are really, like, trying Not to... Not on that APS grind yep. there. Shout out. <laughs> They're trying to capitalize on it. Um, and, in, like, especially the tech industry is so fast-moving, right? So, like, there's a bunch of job cuts now at places like Spotify. And I don't know if anyone knows Atlassian, but, like, a bunch of stuff that was really popular a year ago. Um, Zoom is one of them. Um, and I think it's it's kind of interesting how fast industry will shift. Like, and I'm sure AI will be pushed a lot more, and especially AI that, like, you physically interact with as opposed to the ones that underlie your life. I, um, I've seen a lot of uh, headlines about Google lately mm. and how they were on the back foot about it. Have you read anything about that? I haven't, but I imagine that would make sense because it's not made by the people who make Google. 
I think um, something else to note is that like you can, so I don't think ChatGPT is open source and that's a term that's used in like the tech industry to mean like you can go and look at the code that's generated it, but I do think you can pay to access it and then like there's certain modifications you can make for certain uses and I think like some of them are education, right? So some professors, I'm, I'm jumping to the ANU response, but for yeah. example, my science comm professor used it to generate like a summary of the week we're doing on AI. Like he put in a prompt that was like, give me a summary of science communication and AI. And like that was in our Waddle page. And I thought that was really cool. Um, and I guess you could use it to like generate exams or like generate notes for students to read or like ask it what reading to assign in class. I think that's a really interesting thing. And I haven't really, I'd be intrigued to know how professors are using it. But I've heard from like people are writing papers and they're putting like chat GPT as a co-author on their paper. Yeah. But like it raises I mean, issues there as well. I think that's like a bold assertion. I mean, I watched my professor fail to log into Adobe today. <laughs> so I don't know if everyone's going to be using it. But I, I take your point about definitely about STEM professors. Mm. Um, so the ANU response has actually been quite interesting. Um, there was a bit of like, I think like I was following this for the article we did that was like the intro to ANU this semester. Um, and at first, like the group of eight universities, like, oh, we're going to change our assessment structure. And like Universities Australia came out and like they're going to be more written exams, more oral presentations, which I found quite interesting. Um, and then ANU was like, yeah, we're considering that. But the document they've come out with is like they've not outright banned it, like they've committed to not banning it. Um, but they are trying to issue some guidance around it. So both in like how students should use it and also how staff should use it. But um, there was this review that was done and essentially it's recommended that this stuff added into like the coursework procedures and like, you know, like the academic misconduct rule and stuff like that um, to give the power to individual course conveners to issue guidance in like your class summary or at the beginning of your course about how it should be used. Um, I think that that guidance is issued like, it's not explicitly said in the document, but it's kind of implied that that guidance couldn't permit academic misconduct. So they're still encouraging professors to move away from like product-based assignments is what they called it. So like essays or short responses that you just hand in. Um, yeah, unless it's been like, unless it's been discussed in the course and like you have to, there's also this discussion of like, should you be referencing it if you use it? Um, so I think that's super interesting, but I think it is like, it's actually quite positive that the ANU's kind of leaned into it um, and not outright banned it. It'll be interesting to see exactly how they police what is academic misconduct and what isn't. And like, if that's the role of your individual course convener, that's also a bit stressful, I guess, for them because... Well, yeah. I mean, to come back to my point, you know, which course conveners actually understand how it can mm -hmm. be used. I guess, quick question. Um, we all use Turnitin. Mm -hmm. is, and, and chat GPT, GPT, mm -hmm. sorry, is putting these things online. Is there yeah. not easy ways to verify where it's come from? I think it could be harder than you think, right? Because, like, Turnitin is checking against these, like, static websites. So stuff that is just published on the internet. And obviously it's, like, taking in new sources, but it's taking in sources where, like, the content is like always there and it's probably not changing. So if you're talking about like someone else's essay that's there and not changing, if you're talking about like, I know in STEM we get a lot of like Quora articles and stuff. Like if you're copy and pasting a, an article that's already been written and is on the internet and published, that's very different to it trying to access the database of an AI that's like constantly changing. True, true. Um, I wouldn't know exactly how that works. Like I only did a comp site minor. <laughs> um, but... I think it would be harder for software like Turnitin. And I imagine it's like one of those things that they wouldn't really have thought about until this came about. Like I am someone who's interested in AI. I've done some coding in AI and I like 
didn't even think about how it could impact like on this level until something so sophisticated and so easy to use, I think is the point came out. Is it, is it startling? I mean, like you was mentioning earlier about Facebook and Instagram and those, those are startling AI, the mm-hmm. kind of things they can know about you. Um, do you think this is like a case of like someone's jumped ahead or do you think this is a case of like we're finally looking under the hood and seeing the kind of stuff that something like Facebook can actually use when they're looking at us? I think it I think you're right in that the technology did exist, but I think it was something that was yeah, mainly behind the scenes. And I think like no one in there wasn't a lot of discussion or discourse in like the tech world about like making that accessible to the user, right? The idea is like you make the user's experience as easy as possible so they don't have to worry about the algorithm behind it. And I think this idea of like letting people interact with it and see how it goes is like super interesting and just like it's probably just an angle that people hadn't taken before and I don't think anyone could have predicted that like people would get as into it as they have yeah Um, you know chatbot chatbot AIs have existed for a long time that's Um, very true every time you're like on I don't know Princess Polly and you're like can I return my order that's a chatbot like AI right if you're on Facebook um, Facebook reached out to me today because I'm trying to sell something in Marketplace and it was one of those bots being like, is this sold yet? Or like, are you still posting it? I'm like, no, I'm still posting it. <laughs> but like that sort of interaction, my my landlord now does it completely through a chatbot AI, which is incredibly frustrating to write like rats in the roof. And it's like, do you mean roof leak? I'm like, not quiet. Wow. But yeah. That's hilarious. It is like their one is not very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think it's interesting because like people have kind of like jumped on board with it and really embraced it. But then there's like this kind of community of people who really want to prove it wrong Mm -hmm. like I've been listening to a few like radio shows and it's like people that are really like specialists in their areas and they'll be asking chat GPT a question and it will get it slightly wrong and they're like you know really go into depth about why it's wrong but I think it like yeah raises the question of like what is the value of expertise and if you have something that's just kind of scanning the internet for things that already exist like what room does that present to kind of have Mm. new ideas and I think the other like kind of big issue is is like what's the difference between chat gpt and like contract cheating like if it's Mm -hmm. something else or someone else who's writing your you know essay for you and one of them you obviously pay and chat gpt might eventually become commercial like yeah what is the difference i can't i can't imagine it's going to stay free for long or someone's going to come out and produce like a oh we'll help you write your essays just pay us kind of you know and you get an ai behind it yeah i imagine someone will fall for that yeah, yeah. definitely. But I just right. wonder. Yeah, <laughs> we might we might move on to kind of what's happening on the.